Um, it's interesting. I was just thinking about how it is that um, we're going we're going through the Old Testament. We're going through the law, and um, and it was the law that was given to the Israelites um, to well to put guidelines to put. Um, you know, these restrictions weren't meant to restrict them from anything that was good. It was to give them uh, really a law by which they could draw closer to the Lord and abide with Him, to be holy as He is holy, um, to be a people who are separated from the world and separated unto God Himself. And, um, you know, those who were under the law are to live by the law, and also the law is to be applied to them. Um, in good and in bad, and that is in dealing with the consequences. I sure am glad that today we are not under the law as Christians, but we are under grace. And um, there is such a big difference between the two. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that this evening. But um, I was just thinking how today we can look back at not only our... You know, our Messiah, you know, that the Jew, Jewish, Jewish people or the Israelites would look forward to. But now we can look back and say, it has been finished. It's completed. That, that which was prophesied has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so our faith um, should be that much stronger, you know, as we, as we see these things accomplished. And there are, there's really nothing that needs to be fulfilled before the coming of our Lord for his bride. Um, so we'll talk about grace um, as we go through this evening's study. Uh, but the title of this evening's study is just exactly what it is. It's to preserve sex- sexual morality. Preserve sexual morality. So it's Leviticus chapter 18. And uh, let's go before the Lord and pray. And then we'll get straight into our study. Father, we, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for uh, being here. We thank you, Lord, for being um, our teacher. We thank you, Lord, that... You um, are giving us your truth according to your word, and that your spirit is giving us understanding as he's come alongside of us, and, and Lord, open up our, our eyes to see what we need to see. Lord, I pray that you would do a surgical procedure in our lives this evening, Father, that you would, um, Lord, with your loving hand and with your word, Father, uh, dig, dig deep into our souls, and Father, uh, peel away anything that is not of you. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, strengthen us as your people, Father, to walk in your ways, to glorify you, and to be a people, Lord, who are surrendered to you, who desire to glorify you in our lives, and to remain separate from the world and unto you. And so we commit this evening into your hands, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And he wrote in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, verses 9 through 13, he says this, I wrote to you in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not all meaning the sexual, sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and, swindl- and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, we understand from Paul's second letter that um, that was addressed. Um, You know, it's something very encouraging, something that we can uh, look to as a good example of what the church should be. Uh, These things should be addressed, but we know from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians um, to, hey, listen, um, now the person has repented. You know, if if you get to the point to where um, you put too much pressure on them, uh, you may get them to the point of completely giving up and despairing even. And so we know that all of these areas in our lives are identified and are addressed not to keep us from what we would think to be something that we should be enjoying or something that is good, but he keeps us from that so that we would be joyful in the Lord. We would understand exactly what it is to walk with him and be his people and uh, enjoy those things which are good. The focus is never the thing that is commanded by God not to do, but rather the why of the command and the one giving the command. Those should be really our focus Especially today, uh, New Testament believers, the New Covenant, uh, as we are under grace, we should always look to the giver of the law. We should look to him and why it is that he's given us these commands. These commands are never given by God, designed by God to make us miserable or to make us miss out. You know, we think we miss out sometimes on something that's good. But to keep us away and warn us about what will drive us away from God. That's really the bottom line. What will bring destruction? What will truly steal our joy and kill our intimacy with the Lord? We're warned about what is evil and contrary to the holiness of the Lord. These are all, by the way, things that are truth. Things that the Lord brings forth, again, because of the love that he has for each and every one of us. This evening, we're taking a look at Leviticus chapter 18, in which the Israelites are given boundaries regarding sex, an intimacy that is reserved for and designed by God to be enjoyed within the context of marriage between one, now I have to say one natural woman and one natural man. Anything outside of that is a perversion of sex. Now, let's take a look at the first five verses. This is an introduction to the laws regarding sexual relations. Beginning in verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God, 
You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Again, you know, as we, as we look at this and we look at this introduction to um, the laws regarding sexual relations, um, the, the tone in which it is spoken is very important. You know, sometimes we can look at those first five verses and think of God as being perhaps someone that we know in our own lives, you know, as they made up rules. Uh, I mean, I can think of um, several people as I grew up that um, came across a very um, authoritative, very abrupt, abrasive, and uh, really with no compassion or love behind them. Um, you would never guess that they cared for, for anyone. They just brought across the rules as they were, you know, and you just follow them and that's it, you know, very black and white. Sometimes we interpret God in the way in which we were brought up. And that's not the way we should ever look at God. He's perfect. You know, I know uh, Ray had brought up, you know, uh, looking at a father, you know, and how it is that um, he is loving and he is there and he's always accepting and he's this and he's that. And I can tell you personally that... I kind of had that until the age of 11. And then my dad abandoned us. And, um, and it was some time that I even had contact with him. And I remember that led me to a place in my life to where I was look, always looking, I was always searching out some kind of fatherly figure, some kind of mentor, someone who I could follow behind and I was always, you know, finding people that were the, the wrong examples. But they were willing to be there. I can tell you, we are new creatures in Christ. We have a perfect Father. And we should be careful to not carry the same tone, one way or the other, as we had examples in our own lives of imperfect fathers or father figures or anyone else. We should always look beyond and to our Father in heaven who loves us perfectly, has this amazing love for us. He loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for you and I. Even while we were still sinners, even while we were his enemies, he did this for us. And he knew us all. And so it's very important as we take a look at this introduction that we're not looking at it as some tyrant, some authoritative, although he has all the authority in the universe and eternally. We should look at these five verses as really being the foundation upon which we can look back and follow these rules, follow these statutes, these laws, in a manner in which we know he loves us and we are responding to that love. And that's what he's doing. He's laying this foundation. And then he gives the laws. He gives the rules. He gives these statutes. He established some very important points. Again, these were a foundation to the whole issue of sexual relations. Number one, the Israelites belonged to God. He said two times, I am the Lord your God. And then at the very end of this 
these five verses. In verse 5, he says, I am the Lord. The Israelites were chosen by God to be his people. Chosen by God to be his people. I mean, that alone is beyond comprehension. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. They were chosen to be separated unto him and separated from the world as his treasured possession. He considers each and every one of us the apple of his eye, his children, his people, as we have come to be known as through Jesus Christ. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26 says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16 The Apostle Peter actually referred to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. And he wrote this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so God establishes the fact of the truth of who these Israelites are. This is who I need you to know you are. You're no longer living in ignorance, in the dark, in your sin, you could say. You are my people. You are supposed to be separated from the world and unto me. You are my people. And you belong to me, is what the Lord was telling them right from the get-go. Hey, listen, you are my children. Secondly, he says... You shall not do as they do. They are to remain in that state of sanctification as they live obediently unto the Lord. Live in the consecration that they have been called to. Not to do those things that the people did from where he delivered them from, from Slavery, bondage under Egypt. Egypt, by the way, is, uh, is another picture of, uh, of living in sin. The world is what Egypt is. So he says, hey, listen. Don't do those things that the people did from where you were delivered from. That I took you up and out of. Nor do the things that the people do in the land, Canaan, that I'm giving you as a possession and where the Lord is bringing them into. We'll learn a little later how it is that the land of Canaan was defiled. It was defiled by the very things that God was telling them not to participate in. So, number one, you belong to me. Number two, don't do as they do. Number three, follow God's just decrees, His his laws, His rules. The Israelites were commanded by God to live according to the rules and laws. His word that he had spelled out for them and commanded them to follow. They're actually very simple. If you go through his laws, I mean, they're very cut and dry. They're they're very simple, right? But who can do them? Who can follow them perfectly? No one. (laughs) No one. And he said, listen, you live by them. And if they were to break them, then they would have to live with the consequences. The fear of the Lord living under the law 
is different than today when a child of God is living under grace. There's, there should be the same response, but as we have a fuller understanding, looking back at the fulfillment of all of these things in Christ, we should be responding in just a greater way, with greater faith, with greater hope. Because we have so many things that were already fulfilled in the prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, here are some consequences of deviating from what God is saying here. The highest rates of STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, are among people between the ages of 15 to 25. And I had to look this up. About 50.5 million current infections are in men, while 59.5 million, almost 60 million, are in women. For a total of 110 million Americans have sexually transmitted diseases at any given time. 50% of new infections occur in young people, ranging from age, uh, between ages 15 to 24, and gonorrhea is the most commonly reported STD in that age group. And this is, by the way, the source is CDC, and this was uh, reported in October, on October 7th of 2014. So this is just two and a half years old. I don't think it's changed. I think, if anything, it's gotten worse. What are some of the things that were acceptable in those days? Well, I'm just going to give you one. These were the Persians. The Persians were encouraged to marry their own mothers, sisters, or daughters because they believed these types of unions were special in the eyes of their gods. That, that's just to give you a glimpse. This is a ma- major area within the people of God that separated them from the world and still is today. It's like for society today to remain true, to keep yourself until marriage, that, that's all foreign. That's all something that the world says is ancient. Oh, come on. Live a little. The world says that sexuality has evolved and we should be accepting of all kinds of sexual unions. But let me tell you, this is all a lie. It has not evolved. It is nothing new. It has always been this way as long as there has been sin in the world. (laughs) Since when has there been sin in the world? Since Adam. Along with that, sexual purity has been a part of God's people. What distinguishes them from the world from the very beginning. When God said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24 Becoming one flesh. Becoming, coming together in sexual intimacy. In living two lives as one. So in order to preserve sexual morality among God's people, they were given laws by God that would preserve their union with Him. That's what it was. Actually, the bottom line is to preserve unity with Him. Anytime we find ourselves in a place to where we are rebelliously sinning against any, anyone, 
You know, and, and I say that because we can, we can lie, we can be angry, we can be bitter, we can be jealous. We can experience all those things as well as what we're covering this evening. And really what we're breaking is a union between us and the Lord. That's what we're missing out on. So this is all to preserve God's, the, the union that God has with his people and they with him. To preserve that. Let's talk about the next few verses here. We're going to just go through verses 6 through 18. As we go through, it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, I don't think I need to give too much detail here. Because it's clear. All right, verse 6. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family since she is your sister. You you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter. And you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. Um. The two words, uncover nakedness, is a term that is used that means the same thing as having sexual relations, but also covers more than that, inappropriate activity, conduct, um, even when stopping short of having actual sexual intercourse. This, by the way, includes um, fondling and molestation. It covers all acts that are indecent and inappropriate. Any sexual activity between family is unlawful. It is depravity. It is considered to be sexual immorality and is condemned by God. By the way, society is coming dangerously close to erasing this line of condemnation. Dangerously close. We see this being litigated sometimes in our courts and uh, mother-son relationships and other relationships that up to this point, are unlawful. But that, I believe, and, and I'll just say this because of the way things are going, uh, at some point may no longer be the law. Now, what we're looking at overall, this includes mother, father, grandparents, uncles, aunts, and their spouses, daughters and sons, and their spouses, grandchildren, in-law, step family, family, and other children that are basically adopted or brought up 
in the family. Whether they live in the home, as it's covered here, or in another home. It's like, well, they don't live in my home. Well, that's okay. It's covered, okay? Come on, man. It's, it's just depravity. It's perverse. It's not to be partaken in. These sexual relations are sinful and are prohibited to participate in by the people of God. Whether the world is accepting of it or not, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. The world does not determine what is acceptable or not acceptable as a Christian. God does. We belong to Him. That's why He first laid out in the, the five verses there. Hey, listen, I am your God. You are my people. You are not to do as the people in Egypt, and you are not to do as the people in Canaan. You are to remain separate. Listen very closely. By the way, consenting adults does not justify prohibited sexual acts either. We see that a lot. Well, they were consenting adults. It doesn't matter. But listen, we we ought not expect the world to do these things, to follow these rules, these laws. We shouldn't expect them to. But we certainly should expect those who are within the body of Christ. Because it may be that both parties consent, but that doesn't make the situation acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. These relations are defined as depraved, morally corrupt, and wicked. Sexual relations between family members increase the chances of genetic abnormalities that cause retardation, congenital malformations, and even an increase in perinatal mortality or stillbirths. That is, a baby that is dead at birth or within the first week of being born. It increases those possibilities. They're increased greatly. And the Lord is saying here, it is your father's nakedness or it is your brother's nakedness. This simply means that the nakedness of their spouse belongs to their spouse, not to anyone else. I know I read Genesis 2.24. This is what Genesis 2.25 says. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is a shameless oneness between a husband and a wife. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so there is this law that's given, and a cry that is proclaimed to God's people to remain pure, to honor marriage. Verse 19, just verse 19, says, You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. Um, This has to do with contact with blood. This would deem a husband uh, ceremonially unclean. The woman during this time is ceremonially unclean and would not be allowed to approach the tabernacle to offer sacrifices. Breaking this would require a ritual cleansing for the man and he was, he, uh, was to remain unclean until that evening. Uh, we also covered this in a few chapters ago in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 19. 
All right, so, verse 20. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. Um, Exodus 20.14 says, You shall not commit adultery. There's, there's a lot that can be said in regards to just this one commandment. But at the same time, I don't think that much is really necessary. Because it's pretty cut and dry. It's pretty clear. When we understand that the relationship between a man and a woman in the context of marriage is a picture of Jesus Christ and the church. And it is to remain pure, unblemished. The relationship between God and His people is to remain pure and unblemished. This is a, an illustration, a picture of adultery, to go outside and into the world and be intertwined with the world, to find what perhaps we are being deceived to think we can't find in the, God, in, in the Lord, in God. There's no justification for, for adultery, no matter how you put it. It has to do with your love for God and does not consider the amazing amount of love you have for yourself. And this is really what it comes down to. We have this propensity, this inclination to justify rebellious acts against God because we are, the bottom line is self-centered. It's not because we don't love ourselves, it's because we love ourselves too much to the point to where we don't care about anyone else, including God. The Lord is saying here that you make yourself unclean with her. This is another way of saying that you will defile yourself, to profane, to desecrate that which God regards as holy. That is your marriage. A relationship with your spouse is to be looked at as being sacred in the eyes of the Lord dedicated or set apart for him as the union between each other is honored. This is unfaithfulness that is against God as it is against the other person. By the way, this has devastating effects. It's not just on the relationship, but it's like, you know, I, I heard it said one time that it was, it's like getting a shotgun and just shooting into a crowd of people. It's like you don't know who you're going to hit. You're going to hit a lot of people. You're going to wound some people slightly and others not so much, but there's a lot of people, there are a lot of people that are going to be hurt. And by the way, the effects of this will not be seen immediately, may not be seen immediately. Maybe in some people you will, but in others you won't. Because when they get older, if these are children, it may be that they have been given an example of unrestraint, unfaithfulness, and they are more inclined to mimic this type of action, this type of behavior when they are confronted with problems in their own marriage or even freely give themselves to premarital relations because they see no restraint. They don't see that at all. They seem to mimic that which has been demonstrated to them. We're going we're gonna to learn a little bit more about this in our conclusion this evening. But I wanted to touch on that a little bit. Uh, verse 21, there's this command against child sacrifice. Um, it's interesting that this is in here in the midst of um, keeping 
pre- uh, preserving sexual morality. But verse 21 says, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Uh, God sees life as precious and ordained by him. In fact, the Bible tells us he for, that he formed us in the womb. He knew us before the foundations of the world. He breathed life into our lungs and started our hearts beating. This Moloch was a pagan god who was worshipped by heating a metal, metal statue of him to the point to where he was red. Fiery red. And the statue was made in such a way that the arms stretched out in front of him. Like this. And while others beat on drums to drown out the cries of the babies that were brought before him and set on these arms, they would leave the babies there until they burned to death. Now, why would this, in the the middle of God's laws being given to the Israelites, there's this one verse in there, about sacrificing these children to Moloch. I tell you, this was a form of an infanticide. Birth control. There's, there's another way of putting it. Basically to eliminate illegitimate children that came as a con- consequence of immoral sexual conduct. By the way, today the arms of Moloch are still extended People are still ignoring God and worshiping the God of convenience by murdering their children on the altar of abortion. The high priests performing these acts are not beating drums. Society is doing that. Drowning out the cries of the unborn that are helpless. Now you could say the high priests in this false religion of the God of convenience, of the very doctors who are dressed in surgical clothing taking the lives of innocent children. It's being done. By the way, it's lawful. It's lawful. It's accepted by society, by our culture today. Does that make it right before God's eyes? No. Not at all. As a as a Christian, I am I'm pro-life. I'm not pro-choice. I'm not even slightly towards pro-choice. There are other ways in which we can care for those who are, by the way, a very small percentage um, are children who are uh, brought about because of rape or other forced sexual relations. Very small percentage. What happens is these people bring these up in order to justify the other. It is socially acceptable. But should it be socially acceptable within the church? It it is lawful in our country, but is it lawful among God's people? Is it justified by human law or social acceptance? And of course the answer is a resounding no. It's not. 
Again, I am not pro-choice. I am pro-life as a Christian and a biblicist. A, a biblicist is one who believes the Word of God to be what it is. The literal meaning of the Word of God. I'm not one, as you know, as, as I have taught, I'm not one who takes a look at Scripture and sometimes I say it's this and sometimes I say it, maybe it means that. No, God says what He means and means what He says. Moloch is simply an ancient form of abortion. It is the murder of a baby and is condemned by God and says that a child of God is not to participate in this. And I strongly believe that. I will stand there. And as I do now, I, I always will. That's why it's in there. Verse 21. That's why it's there. Verse 22, something very controversial also. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Quick stop there too. We're on a roll this evening. We're covering everything that's controversial. It's not PC. It's just the word of God. By the way, I didn't choose this. It comes across as we teach the word of God, the whole counsel of God, right? Uh, homosexual sin is an abomination to God. You can't spin it any other way. Sorry, church, you can't do it. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32 addresses it in the New Testament in case you missed it in the Old Testament. So for those people who say, hey, that's old, that doesn't take into consideration the evolving of sexuality, in the world, no, 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 no. That is just not a sound argument. It was true then, and it's true now. Homosexuality has been a part of a perverse people, even backslidden Israelites at time, but never acceptable or justified before God. In fact, over 40% of homosexuals say they have had over 500 sexual partners in their lifetimes, and only 1% that they have, ha- have had four or less in their lifetime. Homosexuals are very promiscuous. That's a fact. I'm just stating facts. To say the least, promiscuous, and often have anonymous sex with no emotional commitment. And this flies in the face of their argument that they want to love whomever they want. This isn't love. It's lust and condemned by God. By the way, he condemns this just as much as he condemns Other forms of sin. Drunkards, liars, murderers. And so we have to call it out, not only this, this is only part of it. Hey, listen, I'm going to go on, but but this is something that should be repented of. You have an inclination toward it, repent of it. Walk with the Lord in His ways. It doesn't matter if you have an inclination toward it. that's, That's what you're leaning toward. I can tell you that I lean towards a lot of things. doesn't justify it. Let me go on, though, because I want to explain this a little bit better. There's this argument. The question is, what if a, a person is born this way? They have these homosexual tendencies from an early age. They say, God made me this way. You know, God did not make you this way. Adam made you this way. 
We are actually sinners by nature, and our slant is always towards sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We just, that's what we are. That's who we are. There is none righteous, no, not one. So before we cast the uh, self-righteous rock, okay, let's understand. There's none righteous, no, not one. I agree. Myself included. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even on our best day, our righteousness are like dirty garments before the Lord. Soiled garments. So our inborn flaw of sin revealed in homosexual attraction doesn't justify anything or anyone. The person who practices homosexuality homosexuality can't justify himself any more than the person who says he has been born with an attraction to children, or married people, or hatred, or fighting, or drinking, or stealing. And we can go on and on. The problem isn't the inclination to sin, but the person himself who is in a dead spiritual body and is given to his master, the flesh, and Satan as a child of Adam. Until, by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, they are made new creatures in Christ and now battle the flesh in their old minds and begin to learn how to walk with a new, what I would look to as a representative leader. By the way, the history of mankind has only had two representative leaders. One is Adam, and the other, if you look at Romans chapter 5, is Jesus Christ. When we come into a life in Christ by grace through faith, he is our new representative leader in his grace, and we begin to learn what it means to walk following him. And so really the problem is that we're all born into this. To some degree or another, we all have this inclination some homosexual, homosexual tendencies, others have other tendencies. They're, they're flaws because of the sin of Adam. And we live in these, these bodies. We still live in the flesh. All of that programming, by the way, that went into your, your head, maybe early on as, as you were perhaps brought up not knowing Christ, all of those things you're still battling. You're still battling. And so we learn to walk in God's grace. We learn to walk as truly new creatures in Christ. And we learn that we are victorious in Christ Jesus over sin and death. It's by grace, not by a set of rules. It's by God's grace. It is his work that he has done and he has completed through his son, Jesus Christ. God the Father through Christ. So the bottom line is homosexuality is an abomination to the Lord and is prohibited. Again, keeping in mind the whole purpose of why the Lord was giving these laws. Because verse 23 goes on to another issue. And you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to any animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. Bestiality is prohibited. Any sexual relations with an animal is perversion. This means the alteration of something from its original course, meaning, or state 
to a distortion or corruption of what was first intended. You see, God designed sexual relations to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife. Anything outside of this is an alteration of the context it was originally designed to be enjoyed within. So it's amazing that this has to be addressed, but I tell you that that is something that is out there today. It ought not be found within the people of God. So God is telling his people, listen, remain separated from the world. Just because culture has accepted, or just because society has accepted, doesn't mean that we accept it. Nothing justifies that before the eyes of the Lord. And then verses 24 through 30 is a summary of God's call to preserve sexual morality. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. These are the things that are set out before us and as God's people, God is telling them, hey, listen, may this never be socially acceptable within you, my people. They, they shouldn't be. Just, hey, listen, we've come a long way. No, God is the same yesterday as he is today and he will forever. He's the same. He doesn't change. It's interesting and worth noting that the land before them had become defiled, unclean, and was, the Lord was, um, you could say, punishing their iniquity, remembering, you know, we need to remember that God is, He's a loving God, He's compassionate, He's very patient. But He's also a just God. And God was calling His people to be holy as He is holy. To remain set apart from the world and set unto apart unto himself. I want to read something to you that I had uh, read in my, my studies. And I thought instead of um, kind of giving you a cliff notes of it or my summary, it would probably be good just to, to read this. This is uh, written by a guy by the name of uh, Michael J. Kruger. Um, and this is uh, found on his website, michaeljkruger.com. He says this, quote, In the first century, while Christianity was still in its infancy, the Greco-Roman world paid little attention. 
For the most part, the early Christian movement was seen as something still underneath the Jewish umbrella. It was seen pretty much as a sect of um, Judaism. And um, so he goes on to say, but in the second century, as Christianity emerged with a distinctive religious identity, the surrounding pagan culture began to take notice. And it didn't like what it saw. Christians were seen as strange and superstitious, a peculiar religious movement that undermined the norms of a decent society. Christians were, well, different. So, what was so different about Christians compared to the surrounding Greco-Roman culture? One distinctive trait was that Christians would not pay homage to the other gods. This was a constant irritant to those governing officials who preferred who preferred to see the pagan temples filled with loyal worshipers, temples which earned a good deal of money from the tributes they collected. But there was a second trait that separated Christians from the pagan culture. Their sexual ethic. While it was not unusual for Roman citizens to have multiple sexual partners, homosexual encounters, and engagement with temple prostitutes, this is old. I guess we haven't evolved, right? This, this was true then and it's true today. An engagement with temple prostitutes, Christians stood out precisely because of their refusal to engage in these practices from the very beginning of the church. For instance, Tertullian goes to great lengths to defend the legitimacy of Christianity by pointing out how Christians are generous and share their resources with all those in need. But then he says, quote, One in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us, but our wives, close quote. Why does he say this? Because in the Greco-Roman world, it was not unusual for people to share their spouses with each other. In the second century, epistle to uh, Diogenetus, the author goes out of his way to declare how normal Christians are in regard to what they wear, what they eat, and how they participate in society. However, he then says, quote, Christians share their meals, but not their sexual partners. Again, this is the trait that makes Christians different. We see this play out again in the second century, Apology of Aristides. Aristides defends the legitimacy of the Christian faith to the emperor uh, Hadrian by pointing out how Christians, quote, do not commit adultery nor fornication. And, quote, their men keep themselves from every unlawful union, close quote. It was baffling to them. That's what it was. A final example comes from the second century apology of Minucius Felix in his defense to Octavius. He contrasts the sexual ethic of the pagan world with that of Christians. Among the Persians, a promiscuous association between sons and mothers is allowed. Marriages with sisters are legitimate among the Egyptians and in Athens. Your records and your tragedies, which you both read and hear with pleasure, glory in incests, thus also you worship incestuous gods who have intercourse with mothers, with daughters, with sisters. With reason, therefore, is incest frequently detected among you and is continually permitted. permitted. Miserable men, you may even, without knowing it, rush into what is unlawful, since you scatter your lust promiscuously, since you everywhere beget children, since you frequently expose even those who are born at home to the mercy of others. It is inevitable that you must come back to your own children and stray to your own offspring." 
Thus you continue the story of incest, even although you have no consciousness of your crime. But we maintain our modesty, not in appearance, but in our heart we gladly abide by the bond of a single marriage and the desire of procreating. We know either one wife or none at all. This is sampling of text. The sampling of text from the second century demonstrates that one of the main ways that Christians stood out from their surrounding culture was their distinctive sexual behavior. Of course, this doesn't mean Christians were perfect in this regard. No doubt many Christians committed sexual sins, but Christianity as a whole was still committed to striving toward the sexual ethic laid out in Scripture, and the world took notice. Needless to say, this has tremendous implications for Christians in the modern day. We are reminded again that what we are experiencing in the present is not new. Christians battled an oversexed culture as early as the first and second century. But it is also a reminder why Christians must not, must not go along with the ever-changing sexual norms of our world. To do so would not only be a violation of the clear teachings of Scripture, but it would rob us of one of our greatest witnessing opportunities. Inasmuch as marriage reflects Christ's love for the church, Christians' commitment to marriage is a means of proclaiming that love. In the end, Christianity triumphed in its early Greco-Roman context, not because it was the same as the surrounding pagan culture, but because it was different. I thought, man, I can't do any better that. That just kind of just puts the period there. The one thing I want to close with is just reading scripture. This is the model. This is the picture that we are to preserve morally. In our relationships, we should encourage that because this glorifies the Lord and it gives the right picture. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, and I'm just going to read through and then we're going to pray. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, Lord, I pray, Lord, for the church. Lord, the world does as it desires. That's nothing new. 
I know that even in the first and second centuries, the first century, Lord, there was much that came against the church, but even more so in the second century. Because they realized that they were losing out on money, influence upon a growing number of people. Lord, I pray that society does not infiltrate your church. That the norms of society today, Lord, are are kept out of the body of Christ. That we would not participate. That we would honor you. We would preserve sexual morality. That we would hold to being holy as you are holy. That we would walk in righteousness by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We would learn to walk in the newness of life. And we would honor and glorify you in our marriages, in any other relationships that we have. Father, we ask for your forgiveness. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, fill us with your spirit. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us also to address others with love and compassion. Lord, because you desire that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That all should know salvation in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So, Father, we surrender to you. We love you. We praise you and we worship you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.